Welcome to the show in our second installment of the Clean Clothes Podcast. I'm Fabriana Firdaus. Today, we are talking about rights for all workers, migrant workers, refugee workers, home-based workers. Workers who might not have all the rights documents or who might be hidden from few. Sometimes, governments and employers don't see them as workers at all, but they still demand their rights. My thought is in Thailand near the Myanmar border. Refugees and migrant workers from Myanmar have lived there for decades. Now, it has hundreds of garment factories that depend on migrant workers. They are often underpaid to an extreme degree. The Kanlayani factory there made clothes for famous brands, Starbucks, Disney, NBC Universal, and Tesco. In 2019, the workers demanded their proper pay. Brown Press takes up the story. And just a note, Kanlayani is the name of the factory and the name of the factory owner as well. My name is Brown Press. I'm the director of MAP Foundation. Uh, MAP Foundation started in 1996. And one of the things we do is identify people who are potential leaders, give them training, and eventually even have passed some uh, through paralegal training. So these these workers are able to uh, organize other workers so that they can collectively bargain with employers for improved working conditions. In, tw- in 2019, uh, we invited Reuters, a reporter from Reuters, to Mesot to look at the issue of underpayment of wages to migrant workers in factories and found workers from the Kalayani factory. Everyone was being underpaid and that there were massive labor rights violations going on. And this developed into a story, uh, mainly because these factories were producing for American brands. Soon after that, the factory closed uh, once Starbucks withdrew its order. So out of the 50 workers, around half decided they wanted to take their case uh, for redress. Uh, They wanted to make claims for unpaid back wages, unpaid overtime, including working on days off and holidays. This group, as it turns out, had also passed through some paralegal trainings that MAP had provided. So they were very active and very aware of their rights. Uh, Kalyani wanted to negotiate with the workers. And so she started negotiations at around uh, half a million baht. And there was a couple of rounds of negotiation, but it was unsatisfactory. And so that was around the time that we decided that maybe we should look at the brands. And so MAP, CCC, and WRC, Workers' Rights Consortium, worked together along with our community partner CBO, known as Arakan Workers' Organization. The factory owner actually put up um, pictures of all the workers who were part of the, the, uh, the claims, 
and said, do not hire these, these people. Uh, basically put out a blacklist and everywhere they went, they found that they were not uh, accepted even though they have uh, obviously extensive experience in garment factories. A lot of them stayed together and they were sharing food, uh, which included foraging for uh, like bamboo shoots and morning glory and other things that were just uh, available in, in the jungle or on the roadside and then eat that with the rice. So it was difficult. So finally, in August or September, the court ordered Galliani to pay 30% of the total, or around 1.1 million baht. She was able to pay that pretty much right there and then. And so from that, we then turned around and asked the brands to pay, simply pay a portion of the remainder divided between the four brands. Uh, Reuters was covering, covering the situation and giving updates on who was paying and who was not. So again, that media back strategy was really helpful. That left Universal as the last company not to pay any compensation. The other three companies paid, including Starbucks. In order to pressure Universal, we decided to focus on their character, The Minions, from a Despicable Me cartoon, uh, which I think was what was being produced there. And so, uh, on International Migrants Day in Mesot, we, we had a lot of the migrant workers dress up as minions and they danced and um, there was a song by Mariah Carey that said, all I want for Christmas is, and then we'd turn off the music and they'd, they'd scream out, to be paid. <laughs> and so um, later in February, NBC approached us and clean clothes campaign saying they would pay, kind of out of the blue. The, the workers are amazing because uh, besides taking care of their debts and remitting back to their families, uh, mostly uh, they've also decided to use funds to help improve a worker center by the, the CBO that I've mentioned, Arakan Workers Organization, and, um, and that, that center will help receive similar complaints and they also put together funds to purchase dry foods to assist other workers in the area who are out of work uh, due to COVID. So that's our story. That was Bram Press from MAP Foundation. The situation for migrant workers is often complicated. It depends on labor law, but also migration laws. The details are different in different countries. Mesot is just one example, but it shows many common challenges. Rico Harima is regional coordinator at Mekong Migration Network based in Japan. Their work includes Mesot and Thailand. A lot of policies in relation to labor rights and migration have to a certain extent um, 
improved or have been clarified. So, for example, migrant workers in garment industry are protected for their labor rights. They are entitled to minimum wage protection. They are entitled to overtime arrangement, and they're entitled to social security system enrollment, just as an example. But in reality, if the migrant workers complain when they're not receiving minimum wage, they would be they would lose jobs, they would be blacklisted from the industry, they would not be able to find any other job, so on. So this lack of enforcement of existing legislation, this has not been improved very much for the past decades. One of the probably unfortunately common in outside even Mekong region, um, challenge for migrant women garment factory workers is the lack of maternity protection Again, it's the issue of a lack of enforcement of law, because in Thailand, uh, even if uh, migrant women get pregnant, they're entitled to maternity protection. They shouldn't be losing a job because of their getting pregnant. They should be entitled to paid maternity leave. But in reality, most of the migrant women we have talked to are even thankful if they could keep jobs unpaid. Why are they not enforcing it? I think that comes from several reasons. Um, one is that there is uh, less pressure, especially in case of migrant women, because uh, as you know, in Thailand, migrant workers are not allowed to um, start a trade union of their own. They're allowed to join, but they, they cannot start their own uh, trade union. So in uh, border areas like Meso, where all the workers uh, migrant workers, how, how do you start the union? I mean, how do you join the union? Because there are no local workers there who can start the union. So without this kind of uh, collective pressure, the government, again, has or employers have less pressure to actually implement the law. Um, despite the fact that the migrant workers are not allowed to form a trade union, there have been a number of actually uh, cases where migrant workers within garment factories did come together and use their collective bargaining power or jointly file the case, lodge the complaint against their employer through the labor office. And there have been actually several landmark, you know, um, victory cases where uh, the court declared that the employers, you know, must um, pay the unpaid wages to these uh, workers. But in reality, employers did not pay. Nothing changed. And all these workers unfortunately lost the jobs and they could not find any other job in the area or in the same industry because they're blacklist. What we probably need to uh, probably strengthen the support is what happens to workers after they actually win the cases. Because quite often, you know, we celebrate the victory, um, but not necessarily being able to follow up thoroughly all the threats and really difficult conditions that these workers face after they win the cases. Reiko Harima from Mekong Migration Network. If you like this podcast, please share it with your colleagues in the Clean Clothes Network. And if you haven't subscribed already, make sure you do. You will get an email every time we publish a new episode, so you want to miss a thing. 
migrants and refugee works in the garment industry in many parts of the world. In Turkey, their role is enormous. As well as Syrian refugees, others from Afghanistan, Pakistan, and former Soviet Union states can all be found in garment factories. Hussein is a 25-year-old refugee worker there. He tells his story here with interpretation by Mariam Danistio. I just arrived and I'm starting my work. That's Hussein. I first met Hussein when I was working for a refugee organization here. He's from Afghanistan, like me. I'm interpreting for him here. My name is Mariam. He tells me that he's from the city of Bamiyan. It's a very peaceful place. I can say it's the safest city in Afghanistan. I spent my whole life in Bamiyan. Those are my best memories. Since then, I have faced so many problems. My parents passed away. I joined the military. The government sent me to Logar province. But visiting my family was very dangerous because the Taliban was on the road. Many of my friends were beheaded by the Taliban. That's why my family asked me to leave the country. It was difficult for me to leave. I was a little bit young. I wasn't ready, but I had to accept. From Kabul, I got a passport with a visa for Iran. From Iran, I walked to the border. It took us five or six days. I was scared. If the Iranian police saw us, they would shoot. We would run at night. During the day, we would hide in old houses in the mountains. I hardly dared to hope we would reach Turkey alive. But when I arrived in Ankara, I lost my hope. I was expecting UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, to help me get registered as a refugee, or at least to help me find a good job. But the Turkish government and UNHCR never helped us. The first place where I started working, I wasn't a garment worker. I worked as a cleaner, but it wasn't enough. I was sending money to my family as well. We had a lunch break between 1 and 2 o'clock. That's when I tried to learn how to use the machines. I would ask others to teach me. I learned how to work with the machines in a month. My shift starts at 8.30. Every two or three weeks, the designs are different. Right now, we are sewing clothes for five or six-year-old boys. The clothes are being sent to Germany. I don't know the name of the brand. 
we work until 7 o'clock in the evening. If I mess up the clothes, my boss shouts at me. I work hard, I'm not paid well, and I still get yelled at. I come home very tired, I'm not working legally, so I don't have sick dates. Hussein tells me how much he makes. In a month, he makes 2,500 Turkish lira. That's only 260 euros. It's less than minimum wage in Turkey. And it comes without benefits like social security or health insurance. I spend a thousand lirs a month on rent and groceries. There are five of us in a three-room flat. On the weekends, before the coronavirus lockdown, I used to go outside. Now, on Saturdays and Sundays, I read books, inspiring books, on how to develop myself, how to have a better life. When I'm older, I'm planning to open my own business. Right now, I'm learning how to build a website, so I can help people set up an online business. I want to make my own future. That's Hussein Karimi. This piece was produced by Duri Boskaran. Around 2 million people work without legal status in Turkey, mostly refugees or migrants. You don't have to be a migrant or a refugee to face extra exploitation at work. It can find you right in your own home. Home-based work has been described as invisible labor. But home-based workers across the world have been getting organized. Matthew Abud has this report. Last February saw the launch of HomeNet International. That's a new global network of home-based worker organizations. Janvi Davi is its international coordinator based in Delhi. She's been part of India's home-based worker movement for several years now. Home-based workers as a category of labor is, is not recognized. Not recognized by, and I feel mostly by the primary employers, which are the brands. Once they're not recognized, you know, this, there's this entire space where, um, where everybody has the capacity to exploit them. You know, if they recognize at the, at the top and say they have a policy for home-based workers, a lot of exploitation can be reduced. HomeNet International might be new, but in India as well as elsewhere, organizing home-based workers has a long history. It started somewhere in the 1970s. And it was started by Self-Employed Women's Association and with the garment workers. They started organizing them, but they didn't have a word for them. The first time when they went for one of the registrations with the, with the labor department, um, they, they asked them, what is the category of worker? And because, you know, if they had to come up with something quickly, one of the leaders said home-based workers. Uh, but from 1970s, you know, of course, Seva was organizing a lot of women home-based workers in India. Um, they also were closely working with ILO. And they got in touch with other organizations in Europe 
and Asia and realized that they were not the only only ones organizing home-based workers. There were many other organizations across the world. Um, that is the time when they received, uh, you know, support and solidarity from three global unions, as far as I remember. One is IUS, second is SNWE, and the third is IPG WLF. Now, this comes to the early 90s and where all of them got together and pushed for ILO Convention 177. C-177 is the ILO Convention on Homework. In 1996, uh, this convention was adopted. You can imagine, you know, there are these big companies. They don't want a, a convention for, for home workers. Um, the brands also, you know, and these big companies went back to their countries and ensured it was never adopted. Only 10 countries have ratified Convention 177 so far, with the last being the Netherlands back in 2012. But organising home-based workers hasn't stopped. The path this follows is different in each country. In Pakistan, for example, home-based work is an enormous part of the labour force, but just how big, nobody knows. Zera Khan says the best estimate is that the country has around 12 million home-based workers, with 80% women. She's the General Secretary of the Home-Based Women Workers Federation, the first union for these workers. There is no fixed wage for them. Working in a very low wage, facing health issues, not considered the part of the economy. So a trade as a trade union, we raised this issue. Previously, uh, this issue was raised only on a basis of gender. And most civil society organizations saw it as an issue of the poor woman. But we took home-based worker issue purely as a working class issue, not just a gender issue. And we said that home-based workers... Uh, was being exploited as both a women and the labor. So home-based workers get work in their home and it is uh, it is thinking in, uh, in the society that the woman was getting a job by staying at home uh, so she don't have any problem. And even women themselves consider that they are getting work by sitting uh, in home and for that they are they, they get paid. Zara and others started to organise home-based workers over 10 years ago. The union was first registered in 2009. Because workers are in their own homes, this organising perhaps looks a little more like community development rather than conventional industrial union work. Uh, we started meeting and study circles with these women workers and made these women realise that they are uh, working and have some rights uh, this was a difficult stage. So we formed union at province, uh, provincial, uh, provincial level and then at uh, federal level. And it was first ever trade union of home-based workers registered in Pakistan and led by all the women from the working class and were themselves engaged with the uh, home-based sector. Uh, majority of these home-based workers were not literate one, but uh, consciously they were far ahead. They had a union, but home-based workers were still not recognised in the law. So changing this became the next objective. The Federation first targeted the government in the province of Sindh. We have participated in draft of policies, policy and even in act, act as well. And along uh, with this, we were building uh, pressure by rallies and demonstration. And finally in May 2018, 
the act of home based workers was passed in provincial assembly so these this after uh, passing of this law 2008 in, in 2018 uh, the whole workers in sin the first thing is that they become the legally recognized as a worker in pakistan the main thing is that that now their wages will be fixed they will be calculated and they will also get the minimum wage or you can say the living wage one thing is more there these any issue with the uh, employer middleman or the, their contractor they can now sue them in the arbitrary committee any case in terms of wages in term in terms of any harassment in terms of anything from the their contractor or from their employer they can go to sue their employer Meanwhile, in Southeast Asia, Thailand has around 3.7 million home-based workers. That's out of around 20 million informal workers in total. The mobilization and campaigning story there is a little different. Punsap Tulapan is director of the Foundation for Labor and Employment Promotion. In 2000, we try to mobilize and organize home-based workers. We need to develop the understanding, you know. because uh, normally uh the home worker they are not consider themselves as a worker most of them are women so they consider themselves as a, a housewife not a worker uh we have to like uh, draw the supply chain you know that uh, the finished products uh, we go back to the factories uh, and then the factory export to other country and they also support the economic growth of the countries that is how we explain to our members Thailand didn't have a formal organization for home based workers until 2013 that's homenet thailand this is an ngo rather than a trade union but even before then after 10 years of organizing by punsap and many others The country passed the Home Worker Protection Act in 2011. The main message in the bill is that uh, it's like a uh, if they uh, work uh, they produce the same product as the, in the factory they should get the, the same uh, income or the same piece rate the factory pay for them and at the same time uh, there is no law on occupational health and safety so under the uh, worker protection act it state that uh, the employer shouldn't subcontract the work that uh, that are not safe and if uh, they subcontract uh, the work they should uh, educate or training in term of occupational health and safety and they have to provide like uh, the PPE the personal protection equipment Punsap says the Home Worker Protection Act still hasn't had enough impact on the ground it took the government 3 years to even set up the home workers committee as required by the law so more work is needed but that's not the only legislative advance they achieved Thailand's social security scheme was set up in the 1990s 
and relies on contributions from workers, employers, and government. For a long time, home-based workers and other informal workers were supposed to pay for all three, which was simply impossible. Informal worker, we also contribute for the economic economic growth of the country. So the government have to take responsibility on this. So we advocate and we success in 2011 that the government will co-pay. Uh, but the government co-pay only from that side, only about one part of the contribution fee. Like uh, if we pay for a hundred baht for the contribution fee, the government will co-pay thirty baht, and we have to pay seventy baht. In South and Southeast Asia, home-based workers have been getting organized. Regional networks were also established. Here's Jan V again. So in 1998, Homeland Southeast Asia was formed, and in 2000, Homeland South Asia was formed. Over the years, these organizations strengthened in numbers, but in the early 2010, there was a need felt to actually go beyond Asia and start organizing home-based workers. This is when WeGo came into support. WeGo is an NGO. The name stands for Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing, and Organizing. WeGo came into support. They did a lot of mapping work, supported local organizations, and in 2013, we had HomeNet Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and now a lot of organizing efforts are happening in Africa and in Latin America. After many decades of organizing and building regional networks. It was time for a global network, and that's HomeNet International. And uh, WeGo coordinated this effort as a central organization, and uh, we were hoping to have a first congress, launch congress in the year 2000. We couldn't have it because of the pandemic, but uh, very recently in February, we've had uh, the launch congress, of course, virtually. But now there exists a global network of home-based workers. Homeland International currently has thirty-six um, affiliates: Africa, Latin America, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. And collectively, we represent over six hundred thousand home-based workers from eighteen countries. And our first step is actually going to be solidarity building between all our affiliates. While everybody is a home-based worker, they're also very different. Because you know they work in different political climates, economic situations. They come from different class, ethnicity, and we have a big, big task of building solidarity between all our affiliates. So that's going to be our first step. All workers deserve to have their rights defended. That means greater collaborations across different worker rights organizations. Marlies von Brumsen is Law Program Director at WeGo, Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing. It's not helpful to from a. Um, Solidarity perspective and from a political perspective to distinguish between workers inside the factory and workers outside the factory. I mean, we know, for example, from an ILO study done in 2017, that 
approximately 50% of these factories are taking orders below costs. And so they have to seek mechanisms um, to download costs and risks onto workers. So typically the workers inside the factories, the pressure on them is unpaid overtime. But the other way of doing that is to outsource further down. They download a range of production costs. So that's the cost of space, it's the cost of electricity, it's the cost of, of equipment, the sewing machine, the needles, and they can pay them so much less. We go, but also home in South Asia um, and home in Southeast Asia, when they've approached the brand to say, can we track, we know their homework is in your supply chains. Can we trace the supply chain? Um, sometimes the brands have been quite keen, and when we ask them, well, what would you do? Well, they'll ban homework then. And I think that's a particular concern for us in the context of the EU mandatory due diligence, because unless we explicitly say it covers the entire chain, and unless we explicitly say all workers should be covered and homeworkers are legitimate workers, the concern for us is that brands will simply say, we don't authorize homework. Um, and then it goes further underground and will have further implications for, particularly for wages. So I think the point that I'm wanting to make is that, you know, do we want to be having first class, second class, third class, some are protected, some are not, some are only formal ones should be protected. And, and in a sense, we really should be transcending um, the sort of label or category of employment and what should be protected. And that in fact, all workers, whether they're formal, informal, standard, non-standard, uh, should be entitled to labor rights. In the last year, 12 organizations across 10 countries have been meeting regularly in a series of webinars. These are all organizations that organize home workers in the garment sector. So one, it's created a, a sense of solidarity, which has enabled us as we enter this period of the EU mandatory due diligence to formulate a platform of demands, to make submissions to the EU, and to begin a global campaign around homework aimed um, at this EU process. We invited um, allies like Clean Clothes Campaign, the Asia Floor Wage Alliance, the Workers' Rights Consortium to engage with the home worker organizations. And what that's led to is that a number of the organizations now want to join the Clean Clothes Campaign themselves. So a lot of the home workers organizations were concentrating on legislation at the national level. Um, and, and what I think is very promising at the moment is a solidarity across South and Southeast Asia and particularly focused on the garment sector, but also an understanding that we, we need to be concentrating both at what's happening at the national level, but also what's happening at the global level. Marlies von Brumsen, and that's the end of our show. We have three more shows to go in this series. Like always, we want your feedback. Please email us at podcast at cleanclothes.org. You can also find that address on the podcast webpage. Matthew Abbott produced this episode with Anna Decker and the Clean Clothes Podcast team. Liz Parker, Sanne De Hu, and Johnson Chin Yin Yang. Sound engineering support is by Steve Adam. I'm Fabriana Firdaus.